0: You're listening to Counterculture on RCR. Reality Check Radio.
1: Welcome back to Counterculture. This is Media Matters with Marie and, well, actually the man that does lots of reading of newspapers on the weekend now, Marty Gibson. How are you, Marty? I'm
0: good, thanks. How are you?
1: I'm very good. And I did some some work over the weekend and actually dived in and grabbed a few myself to further the cause, to see what was actually out in the wider world of print. And there's been, a, again, so, I mean, every week we say this, but there, was, there has been a lot in the week of media. Uh, let's kick off, I think, with the obvious. Yesterday was Anzac Day.
0: Yeah, it's good to see that they're, they're marching again after that time off. And there's some great stories in the papers around that. And the fact that there are alongside stories of young men at a similar age doing things that are, are rather less, uh, I wouldn't say glorious, but less noble. In, in terms of self-sacrifice and honour. It's a measure of how far we've fallen. I, I saw, I read the story about the, uh, the young Spitfire pilot, He must have been uh, 20, uh, and just listening to him talk about, you know, flying off the bows of these World War I aircraft carriers, coming into land, you had to adjust, adjust for the ship bucking around. Of course, there was the problem finding the carrier with as a little as an hour's fuel supply left. The ship, unlike an airfield, could do 30 knots, and it wasn't where it was when you took off. Some pilots were lost at sea, flew in the Arctic convoys. In another part of the Weekend Herald, uh, there was a story uh, about um, a man of similar age who'd punched a 75-year-old woman in the face and broken her occipital bone, and it says the attack victim at the Posey Parker rally. That was then, and this is now. It, it had a, a story, attack victim in silence, but all she'd basically said was that she was a mother and a grandmother and she'd been looking forward to listening to the rally speakers. Uh, And the young man, I understand, has name suppression, which is uh...
1: not an easy feat to to achieve on what, you know, would be considered common
0: assault. Well, common cowardly assault, Mm. I'd add.
1: I can't remember. I do vaguely remember listening to somebody talking about wanting to, one of the parliamentarians, wanting to get on top of these cowardly punches you know those king hit type punches and having legislation around that and to me this equally falls into this category if not more this generation and our generation falls into this category too you know we have we've had what two coming up three generations who have never had to face going and embarking on a world war so we can't relate to what that must feel like at all well
0: well I mean, this is where I'll give us a plug as Generation mm. X people. I think there's a generation gap after us, Marie, where I'm I'm not sure about you, but, you know, I spent quite a lot of time with my grandfather and great uncle who who fought in World War II, survived the Depression, and, and that made uh, an indelible stamp on me. Another story actually was um, that I didn't realize was Wayne Brown talking about his father who had been the lieutenant colonel in charge of C Company. Again, you know, that fact that he had him as a father is interesting. Mm. He, uh, of the 137 men my father fought alongside in C Company, only 44 survived the battle of Alam Al Haifa. That would, and I guess in a similar way to, to the way it inspires us to not let it all just turn to dust. It probably He probably has a similar motivation to stop the rot.
1: Yes, I did. I spent a lot of time actually as a kid with my grandfather and he had my grandfather was one of thirteen and he had eleven brothers and of those eleven brothers I think it was eight or nine went to war. Right. They would they were getting together to catch up and often they were getting together to talk about what had gone on then. And when you think and when I think about it, see this was sort of the seventies. So I mean for them this is still very fresh. My grandfather used to tell the tallest stories though. He had this finger that looked like a hammerhead shark, which for me as a kid I was absolutely fascinated with. And he'd broken his finger, and it was like literally, the top of the bone was perpendicular, and it looked literally did look like the head of a hammerhead shark. He'd told the story to all the grandchildren, and all the nieces and nephews, that he got that fighting, the fighting Jerry, fighting Jerry in the trenches, and he'd put his fingers up to test the, test where the wind was coming off, and it got shot. Uh, when in fact he'd actually dropped a keg on it because he was a publican and he dropped a keg on it and huh. it broke it. And he was too, couldn't be bothered going to the doctors to get the bone set. I Imagine really all see.
0: the stories like that.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: And and it's horrible doing the maths. And, mm. okay, so if this was the 70s, you're, say it's 1980. I mean, 80 minus 45 is 35. You take 35 away from us now, we're talking the mid-90s. Yeah. from now it was World yeah. War Two. I remember uh, my father going to have a whiskey with one of his patients who'd f- fought in World War one. meeting the old chap. I can't remember his name unfortunately, but um, he he built boats and so he had things to talk with uh, my father about but yeah, those men were still around and they were still active. And what um, what
1: is encouraging is the number of people that are on those generations below us the wise the millennials um, and even the zoomers who are actively taking part in anzac day commemorations, so that is i think very positive and it's a really positive for that thing for them to do uh so that's that's great news but yeah as you is said it, just- is it
0: though i've gone the whole time we've been doing the show without using the phrase virtue signaling <laughs> but you know unless <laughs> I knew you were gonna go there yeah unless it's um actually buttressed with a real effort to understand how awful humans can be to each mm. other. And I'd add where socialism always leads, which is gulags and empty shelves and starvation. It's fuzzy, but um, you know, you've know really got to confront what it was these guys were fighting for and, and gain sufficient education that you, when, when someone says, oh, you're being a Nazi, uh, complaining about us behaving like Nazis, that you've got the knowledge of history to say, ah, oh, no, that's that's not what's happening.
1: Douglas Murray references this all the time,
0: mm-hmm. that
1: the lack of knowledge of actual history is a concern. And you're right, it's the, what history are they being taught?
0: Well, you know, there's that saying, uh, if, if you don't study history, those who don't study history are, are doomed to repeat it, but there's... Uh, An appendum you could put on that which is and if you do study history you have to watch every other dumb bastard repeat it it doesn't necessarily make it any easier it makes it harder in fact yeah
1: Yeah, it does moving on both you and i pulled this piece out across the weekend this was in the saturday weekend herald in the a section so it was quite a big piece in regards to the health sector And before people go, oh gosh, they're going to talk about COVID because that's what that station does. No, I'm not going to talk about COVID. I'm actually going to talk about something that I do know quite a bit about. The headline is Kiwis losing losing in postcode lottery, and what they're referring to is depending on where you live, the quality of health services within the public sector can vary wildly. This is nothing new at all. It's been going Mm. on ever since I've had uh, stuff to do with the health system, which is. Uh, from a professional perspective, and that's been 20 plus years. Cataracts have blurred Elizabeth Kerslake's world and often cause headaches. On sunny days, the glare makes her reluctant to drive. In July, she travelled from her Queenstown home to Dunedin Hospital and spent most of the day being assessed for potential surgery. Finally, she was told she didn't qualify. This is where the COVID tie will come in, is with COVID, as we know, a lot of elective surgery got stuck on the back burner cataract surgery is really interesting it's one of those surgeries that is quick to perform relatively cheap on an elective surgical perspective when you put it into comparison with the likes of knees and hips and gynecological and all of that cataracts is very very cost effective it also potentially is one of the ones that can be quite life-changing because without clear vision There are a lot of safety issues involved. Driving a car is one of the key indicators in terms Mm. of whether or not you go forward for surgery or not. And then also falls. One of the leading contributors to falls Uh, particularly people of a certain age, is when their vision has actually dropped quite considerably. And whilst there has been some study and papers written around this, it's never really often linked together. But it's a pattern that ophthalmologists see time and time again of their patients waiting for cataract surgery and and suffering falls. And ultimately, it's the fall that gives them very adverse health outcomes, not cataract. However, uh, a cataract doesn't create pain which then in turn doesn't necessarily create an urgency for most patients to do anything about it. And what will often trigger them to go and see an optometrist or an ophthalmologist is usually them failing their driver's license. Right. So that's what will send them in. Once you go in there, if you're in the public system and you finally actually get an appointment, to see an ophthalmologist, which can take, well, theoretically, it's supposed to take less than four months. That's what the health system has deemed, that you should be seeing an ophthalmologist in four months. Well, the COVID years that never happened prior to COVID, the COVID years completely blew that out to hell and gone. What they were doing prior to COVID is if it exceeded, I think if it got to about six months, DHBs would then send that referral back to the initial referrer which was usually an optometrist but sometimes a GP and then would say to them, uh, we, they can't be seen at this time. Um, either you monitor them or try again. So that's how they dumped all those patients off a list. uh so a waiting, the waiting list. list
0: didn't get too long.
1: Exactly. So that's how they massaged the numbers there. And you would get patients who would get
0: frustrated. Thank God we've got the managers to do that sort of heavy lifting I, in the health I know, system. It right? hey, must be worth the money if, if they provide that sort of outcome.
1: Then, of course, the COVID years happened. The restrictions all came on in terms of what services were done and seen. I can't tell you what those waiting lists are now. All I know anecdotally is they're massive. A lot of work has now been subcontracted out into the private sector. However, the problem being is you don't have the workforce. And this isn't just across this specialty. It's across all specialties. As a lot of ophthalmology has always been one that has required a lot of lots of consultants on the ground to, to cover things off. Many of them were sourced from overseas, and a lot of them went back to places of origin. There were also ones mandated out, and that's never mm. talked about. Never yep. talked about, including one that is in this very region in question, which is why it pricked my ears up. So this woman is based in Queenstown. She had to go to Dunedin. I know for a fact that one of the is is now one of the Dunedin ophthalmologists has got a family in Dunedin, and he is commuting between Dunedin and London. Right. Yeah, but none of these things were mentioned. There was a small piece in he's saying health officials say there won't be dramatic reductions to the waiting list times until at least 2025. A major challenge is severe workforce shortages, including the nurses and anesthetic technicians needed to run the operating theatres. Changes recommended by the task force set up to help clear waiting lists and to be made or explored, including allowing specialist GPs to do diabetic retinal screening." Now, one of the things, there are two things with this. Part of the problem she suffered is that to get surgery, you've got to score everybody. Everybody gets a ranking. Auckland has the lowest scoring system at 46, where she is in Southern District at a 61, which is exceptionally high. So it means that you practically have to be white cane dog material before you'll get your cataract done in the Southern District. The excuses given here, whilst there's no argument that there is issues around nursing workforce and anaesthetic technicians. Most cataract surgery in the public setting is done under local anesthesia. So I'm talking what they call a block or even just local anesthetic drops. There is no anesthetization of the patient from a general perspective. Anesthetic technicians are not required in that instance. In fact. A lot of private ophthalmologists will actually perform private cataract surgery under local anesthesia you know as long as they have themselves in a nurse or sometimes they will have an anesthetist just in case for cardiac issues and that's it so it is again one of those elective specialties that is not very staff hungry but when you have a system that has created a protocol Around having all of these people here, whether they're required or not, you then have a system that has been the architect of the problem, I would say.
0: Mm. Back to that old uh, government is 50% of GDP. I remember when my father moved his medical centre. Someone at the, um, it was not the DHB, it was the, uh, another one of those um, organisations. I think
1: it was a CHI back then, wasn't
0: it? Yeah, something Brown like that. Enterprise. Said, yeah. Oh, so, you know, who's covering you while um, you close down to do that? And he said, well, we're not closing down to do it. I said, well, no, I mean, you know, normally it was three days. I said, well, no, we're going to shift overnight, open the next day. And he did. That's the drag of government that I'm going to keep hammering about because it drives me nuts. Mm. Uh there's so much of 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 these problems, and and as we're reading the papers, something we talked about earlier, it, you start to see the links, but you've got to put them together yourself because you can't really count on journalists to do it. An article on health, which in the Sunday Herald, but it may have been in the conversation part of it. I tried to get something out of this, but it it was about new services key to improved health and well-being, and it was a lot about equity, and it was it was by Anna Matheson, who's an associate. Professor in public health and policy at Te Heranga Waka Victoria University. Yeah, her specialty is a complexity theory, and so I had to look that up as well to to sort of see where she was coming from. But she talks a lot about equity, and what I gathered was, it's basically a way to justify how unreplicatable most social science experiments are. Mm. And and it sort of ties in with Marxism a bit. So much of the paper is a closed room conversation between academics, politicians and uh, consultants. Mm. That's where most of the articles seem to originate from.
1: That issue of the postcode lottery or any elective surgery, none of that is going to get fixed while you have systems that are set up that are not fit for purpose. This is a really good metric as most of these DHB, like in cataract surgeries, they run a list. So they'll have a morning session and an afternoon session. Uh, In the DHB that is here, I know most cataract sessions will be only around four cases, six at an absolute outside. Most of those surgeries, so the actual surgeon's component of that is usually only around 15 minutes, 20 minutes tops. It's actually a very very short procedure. But the faffing around that is mandated by the public system in terms of protocol and systems and everything to get that patient through the door into the theatre, have their surgery done and out again, which is completely unnecessary, it's got no effect whatsoever on the positive outcome on the patient whatsoever, has made that is the efficiency, that's the productivity that that list has. Whereas In the private setting which still has set standards that they must maintain there are external standard assessors that go through private facilities to make sure that you can meet those standards because there is an economic element there that those facilities need to meet they then look at your efficiency and they will pull the number of staff and the process is vastly more streamlined and you will see surgeons comfortably doing eight to ten procedures
0: You get this decision. a lot with A and E. A and E doctors are an interesting uh, group of people, often, but nurses probably more than doctors say, "Well, you know, we provide a free service." It's like, no, it's not. Your, your per-patient cost is about one hundred and thirty bucks, whereas private general practice is thirty or forty
1: hmm.
0: for exactly those efficiencies um, that that you talk about. You, you get this faffing around like Anna Matheson's, and she sort of is aware of the problem she talks about the sum of policy attempts to reduce inequality from taxation and regulation to health and welfare delivery have not come close to stemming the flow of resources away from local communities so she sort of wants it to be local but they're not of the frame of mind to identify government as the problem she mm. sort of still sees it as a solution but decentralizing it or, or devolving some services to to government-funded maori organizations they never quite get there and see government as the problem
1: I mean, I just looked at that ent- entire article, and the eye rolling was almost got a headache with the eye rolling because the journalist completely missed the point that the issue here isn't the fact that she can't get a cataract done. The issue here is the system has been designed to fail. And until someone calls out the fact that the system has been designed to fail, and that there are parallel systems available that aren't failing you know nothing is going to be achieved and speaking of systems designed to fail uh three waters i understand that you are Well, what are they've given it a new name now i've not kept track
0: so yeah three waters there there were there were three pretty critical articles about Three Waters, the least critical was Stephen Joyce, who's always pretty mild-mannered, but still made the salient point that whoever thought up the idea of relabeling the unpalatable Three Waters reforms as affordable water reform should hang their heads in shame, and so should the ministers who had sufficient contempt for the public that they thought simply rebadging something this contentious would achieve a positive reappraisal of the reforms. And, and also, he points out the current reforms are a recipe for discord and disharmony. When more people work out their access to water is effectively controlled by one part of society who have the right whakapapa, then the proverbial will truly hit the fan. Also, nobody knows how a water services organisation will be required to respond when the first mana whenua group declares, for example, that Auckland should take no more water from the Waikato River that ambiguity allows people to assume the worst. And in the middle, you had uh, John Rowan, says Chris Hipkins is doing his utmost to keep the public poorly informed, never acknowledging the directive power of these statements. Denying co-governance is what equal representation on an overseeing body does, claiming at the same time that is no different from the co-governance of places iconic for iwi. And and he quotes um, earlier in the article on Waitangi Day this year, the Herald published an interview by Audrey Young with one of New Zealand's most influential treaty researchers, Dame Claudia Orange, who said, I think the general public is not aware we're going through huge revolutionary changes at the moment. And I think that really cuts to the nub of it. Th- this, Doesn't it? Yeah, Not a lot of people know how focused Nana Mahuta's parents were on claiming water for their tribal ownership. Well,
1: that's been a Tainui goal, uh, not Yeah, she's Tainui, isn't it? Tainui goal for a very, very long time. And she's multi-generational in that. Yeah. One of the interesting things about that comment is that I know you and I have spent a little bit of time looking at some of this treaty stuff over previous years uh, in another context. And one of the things that I learned, again, the fact that not all Māori were on the same page with this. I see very much two groups around the treaty, those who want to work in partnership and actually have all the positives that partnership bring uh, within a wider community context and looking after their own communities, taking it back to like a hapu level, which is the sort of family and the extended family groups. And it's about creating a partnership and within the treaty to actually be like a rising tide that lifts all waka. And then you have those that look at the treaty as a vehicle for power. I think that that's what you see with the likes of Jackson, Mahuta, that entire Māori caucus. There is definitely a a lust for power there. And sometimes I struggle to see where the benefits for their own people will be in this power, because it will be only often the ones sitting on the boards and having those direct accesses. It is quite interesting, you know, when we sit on I as both you and I have done. And we and when talking to people who are there, their opinion on things is quite different to what is painted in, in the media there and from a, an academic Māori level as opposed to a grassroots Māori level.
0: That school of thought which says, treaty uh, will never it'll never be settled so it's it's just something are we're, we're stuck with that is the the constant living with the, this idea that we're an unjust country and it's never going to be solved i i think a lot of maori are, are tired of that and certainly older maori who've participated in treaty claims always talk about how much it took out of them mm. how much it took away from from their life and What really annoys me is that if Maori did less huckers and uh, more sums, they'd be more angry about the commitment that both national and labor have to borrowing a huge amount of money and sending it to nuclear armed countries like India, China, Russia, via the most corrupt financial markets in the world, where 65 to 90% of transactions have been fraudulent, uh, to have zero effect on the stated aim of lowering a trace gas that's uh, vital to all life. And If you think about how much we've torn ourselves to shreds arguing about the treaty, I've put this to politicians. I've never had any response, let alone a rebuttal. But I saw a listener article once where we a government department estimated that our um, Paris Accord commitments could cost $70 billion this decade. Now, that's 30 times the total treaty settlements. And, why, and we're not even allowed to talk about it. We're not even allowed to... Uh, there was no mention of the fact that even the IPCC's uh, estimation of temperature rise had been downgraded. It was
1: five degrees, I think, and downgraded. Was it 2.5 or 1.5? It was I know, even Jess, less
0: than that, it was downgraded. I know Don and but Jess were all
1: over this, yeah.
0: New Zealand's policy settings are all predicated on the maximum projected rise, and they haven't been altered. Even though the IPCC, whose only purpose is to look for signs of of anthropogenic climate change, uh, has said, look, it's not as big a problem as, surprise, surprise, our computer models always say it is going to be. Heather DuPlessis-Allen was the most scathing about uh, the government. She talked about Kieran McEnulty honestly answering a question about it and said, for the first time in the history of Three Waters, the responsible ministry minister just told the truth no spin no semantics just yes and no do non-maori get the same level of say as maori in the three waters set up no they don't does he realize that's not strictly a one person one vote model yes it was refreshing and then it was alarming because it was a cabinet minister admitting that he was introducing a reform that he knew was undemocratic in a democracy and then it was even more alarming because he couldn't explain why at least not in a way that stood up to scrutiny.
1: And isn't it alarming that that is a journalist that hasn't actually realised that this government has been doing that for the last three years, introducing undemocratic legislation? She's kind of
0: tiptoed around the edges of uh, of talking about it, probably as much as any New Zealand mainstream. Can. O- outside mm-hmm. Leighton Smith, she says, talks about how it's not really scrutinised, um, saying Mc- McAnulty was supposed to make the three waters problem go away for labor not open new lines of attack luckily for him though he seems to be getting away I guess that meant with it there's been hardly anything more than a few squeaks of outrage a generous explanation is that critics have been caught off guard they weren't expecting this level of honesty so they didn't know what to say next a less generation a less generous explanation is that they're afraid of the eternal threat of being labeled racists so yeah here we are it's, it's out in the open now that yeah giving them co-governance can't be because of property rights. It must be because of special political rights. This means they get more of a say than everyone else because they're more special. Opposition parties have another week of recess to gather their thoughts and iron out their arguments. They should already be pulling out M- McAnulty's inaccuracies and inconsistencies to question them in the House. It's not as if they're short on material. McAnulty was surprisingly frank and surprisingly wrong. So, yeah, that, that was the... The spectrum of of speech against it but again as as you said there's this meta-analysis of the news where we also see in the weekend herald jason momoa's um film canned because of a consultancy issue in at whangarei heads i think we're going to see a lot more of that this once the the power of veto uh is given it's going to be used it's and the classic
1: I'll- cut, yeah, and it's also the classic cut off your nose to spite your face, isn't it? The other, in this, that, that same edition in the Media Insider, uh, TVNZ's Showdown, Uh, Minister wants change and of course the Minister of Broadcasting is uh, the Honourable Willie Jackson Willie Jackson says our identity goes beyond country calendar TVNZ is in for a major shake-up far beyond hiring a new CEO and chair with Broadcasting Minister Willie Jackson confirming he wants to see a stronger commitment from the state broadcaster to reflect the New Zealand identity I want to see and hear a New Zealand identity and for me despite what critics might be saying it's more than just about Māori. In a wide-ranging interview the Minister said he wants to see all the undeserved audiences including Pacifica and younger Kiwis addressed. I love the live coverage of Te Matatini on TV2 in February and last weekend's TVNZ1 Sunday show which profile boxer Mia Motu. I don't see enough of that in prime time. I want to see that sort of stuff. I want to see some of the country stuff. Country calendar has been brilliant for New Zealand TV. I think our New Zealand identity with respect is much more than that now, says Jackson. They've been saying, oh, well, there's a New Zealand story. It's country calendar. I think it's wider than that. I think Kiwis are growing and this country has been changing. Well, yes, it has Willie, but also in terms of like he's saying it needs to be more than Māori stuff. Is there not a publicly funded entire channel for Maori stuff?
0: Yeah, and and is there is there a possibility we could just start thinking of of Maori as as humans, like
1: New Zealanders, like, like
0: everyone else, like and everyone that, else, as such yeah. they've got more in common with us than they have different.
1: Uh, And also, the other side, as you said, he wants to hear other voices of other New Zealanders out there. Well, I mean, part of the reason this channel was created is there's a whole bunch of New Zealanders out there that have been excluded from prime time as well, and they're wanting to have a voice. So, the media landscape, I think, is is about to set to change, and it's not just locally, it's internationally as well. The merger didn't go ahead, and I think it was the right thing that the merger didn't go ahead. And we've seen already ructions in this country around the media landscape, and I think that that is only going to continue. It will be really interesting that once they've sort of shaken up all the the dice where everything sort of lands um, over the wider spectrum.
0: I mean, he makes the comment that Radio New Zealand has been starved of opportunity because of a funding freeze for many years a funding freeze won't affect us will it
1: no no and speaking of shake up internationally in media the news drop yesterday of fox dropping its biggest rating star tucker carlson
0: that's huge yeah absolutely huge Uh, and because almost all of new zealand's international news comes from the most left-wing out outlets in the states and in in uh, the rest of the world it's not on the radar of people unless they actually watch tucker carlson clips although they're fairly common on facebook if you start watching them they start popping up
1: so for those and i think a lot of our listeners will know who tucker carlson is but just in case you don't tucker carlson has been with fox for a number of years he's also done the traps around magazine he worked for cnn for a time he has a nightly show on weekdays uh, called tucker carlson tonight and then he also has a long format interview show a couple of times a week called tucker carlson today and i have to. say if you have a vpn and you are able to access those interviews they really are very very good he is very outspoken on a number of issues uh he is Tenacious and he is dogmatic, and if he gets his teeth into something, he will not let it go, and he will literally shake that thing to death until he gets to where he needs to be. Uh, an example of that has been the January sixth riots in um or insurrection, depending on what media you listen to in the USA after the um just prior to the inauguration of uh, Joe Biden. Uh, the laptop story with Hunter Biden is another. All things COVID, but the big one was the election the 2020 election and he brought up questions around their digital voting machines of which the company who has those machines took fox to court and they just this last week settled out of court it will be interesting to see the speculation that's already started the dancing on his grave has already started on the alternative media on this Uh, But this is massive. This is somebody who has a very, when you've got a station like Fox, who quite open about their partisanship, right, so they don't pretend to be neutral, they're open about their partisanship, and they say, this is where we sit, we sit to the right of center, and then they're unashamed about that, which in a way is refreshing. But they are one of the few, and in fact, the only large broadcaster in mainstream in the USA that sits in that place. So because they command that space, they com- and they're not fractionated like the opposing side, you have a huge concentration of viewers in that place. Tucker Carlson is at the top of that heap. The nice thing I think now is that there are, unlike five years ago, there are parallel media that have been created and not only survived, but thrived because of the lack of diversity in the media space, like Blaze TV with Dave Rubin, like The Daily Wire with Ben Shapiro. Uh, Spotify was brave and brought Rogan on and look at what a colossus that is. Even Rumble now has really taken off as an alternative to YouTube with people like Majid Nawaz and others uh, with shows across there. Tucker Carlson, I think, there is the ability now for him to really stretch out and break free from those uh, shackles of a network and it will be interesting to see what happens
0: his interview last week with elon musk was really interesting about ai you know that that's something that the coverage in new zealand's media is really not doing it justice without questioning it they'll listen to jacinda Ardern talk about well we've got to be cautious with ai and they won't say well hang on in 2019 you signed us up to that world economic forum pilot project about using ai to write government policy why don't you talk about that yeah i mean elon musk raised uh the specter that it's already getting toyed with so if you say ask about any anything about race or politics it's all great for joe biden it's all bad for trump They've already started tinkering with it. And, he, and, and one of the really interesting things was Elon Musk was talking uh, about a conversation he had with, I think it's Cinder uh, Pichar, who's the CEO of Google. He, he said, you know, I, I don't, I think ultimately this could be really dangerous for human, the human population. And he said the guy called him um, species or a speciesist that he was favoring humans over other species. Wow. That's a frightening insight.
1: Isn't it, just... Um And so,
0: yeah, there was there was a um, there was a uh, there was an article in Monday's uh, New Zealand Herald where correspondent Matt Heath had a toy around with Chat GP and got it to write Ten Commandments, and they sounded pretty good. And he said, with AI-generated commandments like this, I was feeling good about the future of humanity. Maybe it would be better to have robots take over sooner rather than later. Then it struck me this is BS. G P is just telling me what I want to hear. It doesn't have beliefs. It simply generated a reflection of my input. And if you contrast that with Elon Musk and Tucker Carlson saying, well, no, it's actually been hijacked by very left-leaning programmers to say what they think you should hear, it becomes even more sinister.
1: Isn't this a song that we've heard before? The Social Dilemma that was out on Netflix a few years back, one of the programmers there, and he talked about how the algorithms that were used by the likes of Google and YouTube and Facebook to keep engagement going with people to stay within those platforms was being used to send them down different pathways. And we know that in 2016, the Cambridge Analytica scandal with Trump, which seems to be popped in a memory hole way back then Trump used that to his advantage to help him get elected in 2016 once the left cotton to what that went on they then I think have taken that all that data and information and they've used it to send their messages out to the world chat GP seems to for me feels like an extension of all of that does it not it's just taking that to the next level from an AI
0: perspective yeah I mean if you look at all of it if you look at the algorithms training people to say things and achieving that with enough of a population that you can vote governments that are friendly to that way of thinking, you know, maybe that's what's happening with uh, Klaus Schwab and Jacinda Ardern and Chris Hipkins' pilot project for um, for AI. You know, it's, maybe that's what it's doing. Yeah, the frustration of, of being a person who studied history and has to watch everyone else repeat it. Mm-hmm. And, and I guess, you know, we should start, Uh, extending some tendrils of what do we do in all this because it's quite disempowering to to talk about all this and the solution is well people have got to get together and they've got to um, stop arguing with crazy people it just sucks energy and and they're not interested in logic you know people always act as if people are driving this kind of everything's racist or misogynistic or or transphobic you know are actually interested in in discussion they're not they're interested in crushing discussion Mm. as that 70 year old woman found out from the 20 year old war hero
1: it's interesting you should say that because carlson did a speech on the weekend and it was at the i think the 50th anniversary of the, the heritage society and the speech was pretty incredible i i get the feeling that he already knew that he was leaving Fox, because it felt exceptionally open, even right. for Right, I didn't
0: get a chance to get to that, but I'll, I'm looking forward to listening yeah. to it.
1: Yeah, and just, at that point you just made about the crushing of ideas and the crushing of civilization was one of the themes that was in that speech, and it was incredibly powerful. But it's, again, you've got to look at the positives. I just spoke to Katie um, Hopkins before, and she talked about you've got to find the positive in the little things, and whether that positive be um saying to a young man that helped somebody an older person having an issue getting on an escalator coming up and saying that was a really good thing that you did or doing something positive yourself i think that it's we've got to take everything back to a community level because those messages that are coming out now that the gaslighting that is going on within the media level is absolutely incredible actually the curia poll did you see david ferrars curia poll on media bias that I thought was really interesting as I mentioned before Fox as a broadcaster has always been open about where they sit TVNZ I think sat at something like plus 15 Uh, the perception of people is plus 15 that they lean to the left Whereas if you were to talk to TV and say, where are you? you say, no, we are the moderate voice of the nation. Interestingly enough, the Herald actually came out from a print perspective pretty good. They, from a perception point of view, they sat in the middle.
0: Well, it's probably because of the business section and, you know, mm. the people who are tucked at the back of the paper. Mm. As I said, you know, Heather Duplessis, allen John Rowan, you know, they, they do Stephen run. Joyce. Stephen Joyce. Peter Dunn. Um, yeah, they're there. But yeah, I mean, you know, the whole left-right thing as well infuriates me because again you've given this well you know if you go that way do we get to Hitler and if we go that way do we get to Stalin absolutely not they're, yeah. they're in kind of the same direction I, I think at this point the way I think of it is left-wing is you want bigger government and less freedom and right-wing is you want smaller government and more freedom and by that definition I'm right wing, and you know what I think the majority of New Zealanders are too, if you teased it out of them, you know, if they actually were able to um to assess facts as the media should really be presenting them. but as as I said, this the media is kind of like a town square for the for government and its toadies. yeah, they're not they're not doing that job, and that's incredibly dangerous because as i've said before you know we we're not arguing our point of view necessarily as primary focus it's it's that we should have the argument and there should be someone on each side providing their their side of the argument so people can make up their minds when that's taken away it's a very dangerous place and and you can see all of these bright-eyed young socialists like hepkins like ardern and they they've got this that patronizing idea that if people don't agree with them it's just because they haven't PR'd it right uh, rather than actually facing the fact that they're hopelessly inexperienced they don't really know how the world works uh they've been flattered by people who are using them as middle management to drive an agenda that's really not that good for most people
1: no not at all now education we do like to say something on education each week have you got anything
0: well, yeah, there, there wasn't there wasn't a, a whole lot on education. There was an article in the Sunday Star Times about teachers being tired of being political footballs. Again, it's it's kind of hard to pick any outrage out of it about the failure of the education system. They're just basically saying don't keep swapping things on us. Uh, you, you've got Education Minister Jan Tinetti. She was already on board with a bipartisan approach. We know there is more to do, which is why we need the understanding of exactly where the challenges exist across the sector. I welcome National and other parties to this conversation, Tinetti said. National education spokesman, the lovely Erica Stanford, I just put the lovely in there because I think she's awesome, as far as National goes, said she would also welcome a bipartisan approach to education, although she said it needed to start with the government. Labour has failed to give National any input into significant changes to the curriculum or NCEA over the recent years, and we have been left completely in the dark, she said. That's a recurring pattern with Labour. They also said they were going to consult with people who are running charter schools before they closed them down virtually on their first day of office. But if you listen to Alwyn Poole, they were impossible to get hold of, and they really didn't want to do any of that.
1: But that's okay. they're clear and transparent, it's fine.
0: There was a long interview with the Vice-Chancellor of AUT, and he made some good points about getting people into education who normally wouldn't. He said, if you're a six foot seven kid, it didn't matter where you were, the Rugby Scouts would find you, right? He says, if you are a brainy kid, if you're mathematically gifted or you have a facility with chemistry or physics, we won't find you. We need an education system that makes sure every single talented person reaches their full potential. Again, you're not going to do that if you're squashing down the people, kids who are best at maths because you're worried that that disparity in ability is driving inequity. He's married to Labour MP Jenny Cilley, so it's a, yeah, it's kind of a club.
1: A club, though, it's interesting that he is talking about that in terms of bringing people into education, because, of course, this is an issue at the moment, that enrolments are significantly done. I think over 650 full-time enrolments have uh, been cited as the reason for mass layoffs at Otago University, and the call for voluntary redundancies has been uh, started this week, and they are looking at absolutely slashing staff And Victoria University has also indicated that they are not ruling out the potential of a restructure as well. So it's interesting that our tertiary institutions are facing this and it is a chicken and egg, isn't it? Is it it because we're not putting out students capable enough to have the rigor within tertiary education, they're leaving our high schooling system completely ill-equipped? Or are they seeing that the value and the cost of that education is now no longer there and they're better off to actually walking straight out of high school into a trade-based on-job learning environment and actually earning as they're learning? What do you yeah. think?
0: I struggle to advise a young man because young men are the most failed by the education system. 50% more women than men go on to tertiary education, so... If it was the other way around, of course, it would uh, be a sign of all sorts of things. But um, because it's young men, there is actually, so you get some academics actually saying, well, it's a it's a welcome rebalance, that ed- education's failing men because it helps with equity. I, I really struggle to advise any, any young person to take on, unless they're really specific about what they're doing. They want to be a doctor or they want to be a nurse, which you don't do at university anyway, but um, struggle to advise them to take on 100 grand of debt. Um, because if you're in a foot race with a kid who's doing, um, say, an engineering apprenticeship, and they're earning, say, over the course of their apprenticeship, which might be three or four years, three years, so, they'll earn a hundred grand. So already they're two hundred thousand dollars apart. And then once you're out of university, you're not earning what a qualified engineer is earning for a good three or four years. And if someone's intelligent going into that, in that in that time use those skills to create a business or um, get into a high paying job somewhere else so it took me about five years after finishing school to get my curiosity back i think the right thing for a young man to do is get a trade maybe a bit later in life when they found uh, what they're really passionate about study that
1: well i want to finish off on something completely frivolous and positive oh good Yes, and I know it's something that doesn't really interest you, but I saw it and I just thought you've got to have some good news. And this week, Wrexham FC, an English football league club after a 15 year absence uh, from the National League, has won their bid to re-enter the National League. Now, why on earth would I be interested in something like that, you ask? Well, I'm interested because the Welsh Club is owned by actors Ryan Riddles and um, Rob McElnay, and they purchased the club on a bit of a wheeze, I think. There is, I think, a whole sort of TV series that goes along with this. I think they did it as a bit of a, a, bit of a joke and a, an ability to create a little bit of content. But obviously, what they've gone and done by buying this club and giving that... I think, sense of hope in all of those things there, that this club, because it was on the absolute verge of folding, uh, it's three times they reached that promotion relegation zone to re-enter and they weren't able to. And then they were able to do it this time round. And if you do look it up, the scenes on it are really quite amazing. And it's, I mean, there is so a film here, but it is certainly a real feel-good moment just to show that something positive can actually happen. So you've got some feedback for us. We'd love to hear from you. Inbox at realitycheck.radio. That's inbox at realitycheck.radio. You can also uh, send us a text uh, to 4040, then put RCR before your message and then type your message in. And we get to see that as well, Uh, particularly if there's something that you'd like us to cover or you've got something that you'd like to say. Uh, So do definitely do that. So thank you very much, Marty. Greatly appreciated as always.
0: Thanks. Yeah, thanks very much, Marie. Thanks as, for asking me, as always. And um, yeah, I look forward to hearing that feedback. Have we been called racist yet?
1: Uh, no, but um, I know we have not been called racist. Well, not that I'm aware of. Maybe to-
0: we're not doing our job.
1: Maybe we well, maybe not. Maybe not. No, so far, the feedback has been overwhelmingly positive. Uh, and we do appreciate that. So thank you to you. Have everybody. a great week. Have a great week to you, too.
0: You've been listening to Counterculture with Marie Busky. Reality, Reality Chick Radio. Reality. Radio.